First Peter chapter three, <clears throat> verses eight through twelve. See me. First Peter three, verse eight. Finally, I'm not saying I'm almost done. Just so you know that. But kind of in conclusion here, Paul is kind of making a summary, you might say, of conduct uh, that's pleasing the Lord so that we can dwell together in harmony. But anyway, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love us brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Know that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him from refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them, that do evil. Tell this message, living in harmony before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to meet together. Pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight and be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with you. And may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in First Timothy, the book, the the the, the key verse is. that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, the church pillar and ground of the truth. Well, here Peter is telling us how to live in harmony with one another. He says that we're to be of one mind. Uh, that this word one mind uh, speaks of harmony, like harmony in a song. You know, if you've uh, if you know anything about music, you notice that every once in a while a, pian a pianist will hit a wrong note. Now, if it's wrong enough, it almost is like somebody running their fingers down a chalkboard. Just, just, just you know, there's dissidence there. It just doesn't go. Um, that's of course. The opposite of what we're talking about here. And of course to live in harmony. We need an authority. And he's been talking about that. In the preceding verses. Of course Jesus Christ is our authority. And his word. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 21. Tells us that even hereunto were you called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example. That we should ye should follow in his steps. So we have an authority. One to look to. To direct us and you know uh, uh, to 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 uh, tell us that authority to, to gauge ourselves, you might say, and and there of course needs to be leadership that directs or commands that authority. In the home, it's the husband. Chapter three, verse five says, "For after this, in manner of old time, the holy women also trusted in God and adorned themselves, being." in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah bade Abraham call him a Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So in the home, it's the, the leadership is, 
is given to, and the responsibility is given to the husband. Uh, in the church, of course, it's the pastor. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And, you know, Peter took that authority given to him by Christ in the church at Jerusalem. He was the first pastor after the Lord Jesus. And he confronted Ananias and Sapphira, who really what they were trying to do was bring disunity into the church. And so, you know, the purpose... purpose uh, You know, it, Peter uh, was to prevent the unity of the church from being corrupted. That was his purpose. And, of course, we need, you know, in the home and in the church, we need to be in harmony. You know, Ephesians 4, 3 tells us to, to keep the unity of the Spirit in bond of peace. We keep it. We don't create it. See, unity or harmony is automatically created when we all follow the same thing. Or the same person. Um, when we were in Maryland, there was a uh, little church not too far from where we were going to church. And we were in a pastor's fellowship, I think it was, one time. And the pastor of the church we went to was, you know, Alan Dickerson. But anyway, he, was, he said that, and, and he was talking about unity in the church. And he said uh, he was in the, the, the college lounge there one day, they had a small college there, college lounge one day, and this guy introduced himself, said, uh, I'm the new pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church out here. And he said, I, I said, well, nice to meet you. I'll pray for you. And he said about six months later, he saw the man again. He said, uh, I saw the twinkle in your eye the day I introduced myself for you, and you said, I'll pray for you. He said, you ever try and pastor a church where no two people believe the same thing? You see, and of course, he, did, he wasn't there long. No, we need, to, we need to follow the authority, of course, the word of God, and the leadership that God gives us is direct that authority uh, to, so that there is harmony not only in the church but also in our homes. By the way, if there's not harmony in our homes, it's going to cause disharmony in the church as well. So, so we need to be of one mind. Uh, he, he also says we need to be sympathetic. You know, these are some things that, that, that uh, he instructs us uh, to be. We need to be sympathetic. Verse 8 says, and, and having compassion one of another. Uh, it, the word compassion here has the, it means suffering a feeling like with another. It's being sympathetic. Uh, we see an example of this in, uh, spoken of in First. First Corinthians chapter twelve, First Corinthians chapter twelve, and verse twenty-six, where he says, "And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it; or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it." So, in the body of Christ, the local church, when one member suffers, we sympathize with one another, and that's the idea here. We suffer with one another. 
You know, I never could quite figure out, even when I believed the universal church, how you could do that with people over in China you didn't even know. But anyway, that's another subject. No, we're to be sympathetic or have suffer feelings alike with one another. We're to have love as brethren. Uh, and that simply means loving one another like we'd love our own brother. Like we'd love our, our, our biological kin. And of course, this is the commandment that Jesus gave to us in John chapter 13. And he called it a new commandment. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. And your love, biblically, is doing right by one another. Doing right by one another. Uh, Romans 13 says, Love is a fulfilling of the law. I mean, if you, if you love your brother... You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to kill him. You're not going to covet his wife or his house. Uh, no, love is doing right to one another. That's what love is. It's the fulfilling of the law. And so we need to have love as brethren. Uh, we need to be pitiful. Verse, uh, verse, verse 8 again says, and this is a similar word to the word compassion, but he says be pitiful. The word pitiful here means tender-hearted. Uh, the Lord is pitiful. Psalm 103 tells us that he, he pities us. You know, David, you know, I think a good picture of this is David, what David did for Mephibosheth. Got my tongue twisted over my eye teeth. Uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> the idea here is tender-hearted. Hearted. Second Samuel chapter nine. Second Samuel nine one says, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba, and when he had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. Now let me say something here. What did kings usually do to the kin of the preceding king? Especially in this case, Saul hunted David like an animal to kill him. However, Jonathan and David were best friends. They were best friends. Verse 4, And the king said unto him, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that may kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Lodibar means house of no bread. He wasn't doing well, by the way. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. 
And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant? Thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am. Then the king called Ziba. You know, David didn't even answer that question. He just ignored it. He just simply said, Ziba, you take care of all that pertains to Saul. Mephibosheth's going to eat at my table. You see, he was tender-hearted. Ephesians 4.32 says, and, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know, we need to have tender hearts toward one another. Tender-hearted. Be pitiful. Number five, he says, we are to be courteous. Be courteous. Now, this is interesting to me. This word courteous, I looked up a definition that means humble-minded, having a modest opinion of oneself. Hmm. And I think the idea here is being humble-minded, having a modest opinion, you're not thinking too highly of yourself, and you'll be friendly and kind and willing to go out of your way to make others feel welcome, appreciated, of worth. You see, it's going out of your comfort zone, swallowing your pride to be kind and considerate to someone else. I remember when I was in Maine, <clears throat> there was a, somebody died, I can't remember who it was, and we were talking about going to the viewing. It wasn't somebody in the church, it was somebody we knew. This one lady said, I don't go to viewings and funerals. I just don't feel comfortable. I don't know what to say. I said, but you need to humble yourself. And think about them and not yourself. You know, if we pastors took that view, we'd never visit anyone in the hospital. I would never go to the hospital. Because I don't feel comfortable going to the hospital. I don't know what to say. I'm just being honest. You know, some people have this idea that you know, pastors are magical. We just always know what to say. We're always supposed to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. You know, we can snap our fingers when we have a message ready. No, we're just people like everyone else. And so, see, the idea here is I'm being humble-minded, not thinking too highly of myself, but being considered or thinking about others and being willing to go out of my, my, my way, out of my comfort zone to make others feel appreciated and important. So we are to be courteous. Now, now he gives us some negatives, some what-nots. If you notice in verse 11, or verse 9, not rendering evil for evil. Now this is the way, the way the world lives. Not rendering evil for real, evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, know that you should, thereunto uh, called that you should inherit a blessing. We are not to react to what others do to us. And when he says evil for evil, the idea, is, the word mean, the meaning there is injurious, or we're talking about physical harm or physical injury. 
when people physically hurt you, we're not just supposed to do it back just to get even. Now, we're not talking about whether you need to protect yourself or not. That's a whole other issue. But we're not to render evil for evil. You know, he did it to me, so I did it to him. That's childish. Or railing for railing. And this is the idea of speaking reproachfully. It has to do with words or what we say. Uh... Look at chapter 2 and verse 23. This is our authority. Verse 23 says, Who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Romans 12, 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil, Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt eat coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you remember in the Old Testament... Elisha the prophet was telling the king of Israel where the king of, of, king of Syria, I think it was, was going to attack. And the king of Israel saved himself three times. And finally the king of Syria says, all right, he says to the staff, all right, guys, which one of you is going over and telling the king of Israel? And he said, one of them said, none of us, Lord. It's that Elisha the prophet. They said, all right. Let's go get Elisha the prophet. So they camped around him in his house, and he wakes up in the morning, and there he is, there they all are, you know, and Gehazi's like, what have we got to do? And he just prays the Lord the blind, and he leads them all right into Samaria. And then it says, Lord, open their eyes. And so they're in the middle of Samaria, and the king of Israel says, what should we do? Shall we smite him? Shall we smite him? He said, no. Give him food to eat. Send him home. You know what? The king of Syria never sent or never came into Israel again after that. See, we're not to take vengeance, whether it's physical vengeance or whether it's with words. This is, you know, this, we sang the song tonight, Higher Ground. That's what it means to live on higher ground. Uh, Ephesians 4, 30 talking about words. Ephesians 4.30 says, I'm not sure why I have that verse written there. Um, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption, that all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. Malice, of course, he has the idea of vengeance. Be ye kind one to another. Uh, Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech with the always with grace season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. You know, somebody has said this, he who angers you controls you. So if you make decisions based on other, how others treat you, they are controlling you. Think about it, young people. If you make decisions based on how others treat you, instead of what is right, 
You're allowing those people to control you. I pastor in Maine, I don't know how many times I heard this statement. I'd never go to that church again. And they were saying that because of a pastor who was immoral. I got thinking about that, and so my response was, so you're allowing him to control you for the rest of your life. That didn't always go down too well. But it was true. You see, they reacted to something that he did. And he did. But see, we must not let others, we must not make decisions upon what others are doing to us. We're not to kick others because they kick us. That makes good horse sense, someone said. I read this, and I don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous, but it says, A horse can't pull while kicking. This fact I merely mention. And he can't kick while pulling, which is my chief contention. Let's imitate the good old horse and lead a life that's fitting. Just pull an honest, honest load, and then there'll be no time for kicking. You see, we are supposed to take the higher ground. We're to be a testimony to the world, and we can't be if we act like the world. So, we're not to react to others. And then he gives some, some qualifiers, you might say, for a good life. Notice verses 10 through, 10 through 12. <clears throat> verses 10 through 12. He says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no God. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So, you know, to kind of sum this up, if we're going to live a good life, you're going to have to put into practice some of these things. And, and some of it we can say, well, number one, control your tongue. Control your tongue. Um, Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. So there's two things here as we think about controlling our tongue. We're to speak no evil. Not to speak evil. The word evil means noisome, wicked. You know, we've got a lot of people in our country tonight that are very noisome and they're wicked. They're speaking evil things. It's lies. And they're just in your face. We're not to speak evil. He also says no guile. That word guile means deceit or meaning to decoy. Like the idea of a decoy. You guys at hunt know what a decoy is. Craft. Uh, Matthew 26, 4 says, And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtly and kill him. Mark 14, 1 after two days was the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft. In other words, they were going to use decoy here. They were going to appear to be you know, near him and, and, and look for an opportunity to arrest him. 
but appear to be peaceful. So we need to be careful. We need to learn to control the tongue. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 talks a lot about the tongue. <clears throat> master, be not mas many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bride the whole body. And you realize what James just said there? If you can control your tongue, you can probably control everything. So what's that tell us? The tongue is the hardest thing to control. It's the easiest thing to use. Behold, we bit bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, which boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therefore bless we God, even the Father, and therefore curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. You know, we need to really be careful what we say. Because what we say can send somebody to hell. Somebody said, keep your words short and sweet. You never know which ones you'll have to eat. See, we need to control. We need to learn to control our tongue. Our tongue. We need to speak the truth with kindness, with grace that always speak the truth, not be deceitful. Secondly, we can sum it by saying, control your actions. Notice verse 11. Verse 11 says, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. The word eschew is an old word, which means to avoid or flee from. Uh, used a couple other places in the Bible. When speaking of Job, when the Lord spoke of Job, he said, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was a perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. So he avoided or he fled from that which is evil. The best example I can think of this is Joseph. Remember in Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife cast his eyes at Joseph, said, lie with me. In verse 39, verse 12, it says, and she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. In other words, he ran away from evil. He fled from it. You know, the Bible tells us there's some things we need to flee from. 1 Timothy 6, 10, 11, we need to flee the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which will some coveted after they have erred from the faith, pierce themselves through with many sorrows, 
But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful us. Flee youthful us. He isn't just saying this for the youth's sake. He's saying it for all of us' sake. You know, you know, there's a lot of things that we could speak of as youthful lust, the desire for just entertainment, laziness. A lot of youth are lazy. Laziness is a spiritual problem. Of course, you know, could also refer to immorality. Um, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You know, we need to flee these things. So we are to eschew evil, to avoid it. But we're also to, I know this is real original with me, we have to work at it. Notice what verse 11, the rest of that verse says. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Seek peace and ensue it. Uh, the word ensue, again, that's an old word, and it means to pursue. In other words, if, if, if you want to learn to control your tongue, if you want to control your actions, if you want to, Love life and see good days, you're going to have to go after it. It's not just going to come to you while you do nothing. No, you're going to have to go after it. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to overcome your human nature that will oppose you and the world that will oppose you. The world has a different idea how we ought to do things. World says, hey, if they kick you, kick him back. If they bite you, bite him. He that talks the loudest wins the fight. That's the world's philosophy. No, we've got to work at it. It means to pursue or press forward. You know, Paul talked about this all the time throughout his ministry. Let's look at a couple examples. First Corinthians chapter nine. First Corinthians chapter nine. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. And, and really, this is true in anything. It was sort of like I was, I think, I was talking similar to this. I guess it was either Thursday night or Sunday night. Last Sunday night, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, like, it's like athletics. And, and he's using an, an, uh, uh, an athletic illustration here in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. And every man that striveth. In other words, you've got to strive for it. That means you're going to have to put forth some effort. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crime, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You know, Paul's making reference here to a shadow boxer. You know, they, they practice, you know, exercise. I mean, they, they're just 
They're just boxing the air for exercise. But he said, I'm not boxing the air. I'm fighting a real spiritual battle. I'm, I'm, I'm working to defeat and bring my flesh under control every day. That's why I said when he wrote to Corinthians, I die daily. When he wrote to Galatians, Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified. You see, we've got to work for it. Just as an athlete strives or works to prepare to receive a corruptible crown. And if we want to receive an incorruptible crown that God has for us, waiting for us, if we will strive for it, we're going to have to work at it. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after that if that I may apprehend that which for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He said, I, I'm not, you know, some. Some probably think, well, Paul, you know, he attained it. No, he said, I haven't attained it. I've not apprehended it yet. In other words, I'm not arrived at where I'm not perfect. But notice what he did say. Brethren, I count not myself, verse 13, to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, What's, in, what's behind? What things behind do you need to forget? Well, you know, that day I failed the Lord. You know, the devil can really keep you discouraged and keep you from doing that which is pleasing the Lord by bringing to your remembrance how you failed the last time. He, 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 yo, you're just going to fail again. You're going to fall flat in your face. Do you remember the last time? Paul said, I need to forget it. Think about some of the stuff he had to forget. Consenting to the death of Stephen, holding his clothes, the clothes of those that killed him, arresting Christians and putting them in prison. You know, I, I, I have to think that possibly Paul could still see the tears of women and maybe of children whom he'd arrested and put in prison. And that had been killed because of him. He said, I gotta forget that. It's behind. God has forgiven me for it. I gotta forget it. You know, sometimes we ask God to forgive us, we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. We need to forget it. But you know, we also need to forget the past victories. They won't do for the day. They will encourage us. It's good to remember them, but we can't live on that. We need a victory today. So he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, the word apprehend means to obtain or to lay hold of. So he said, I'm working to, to obtain that 
incorruptible crown. I want to lay hold of it. Now you got to work at it. So we need to work at it. I want you to notice the fourth thing here. We have a heavenly Father watching over us. Notice verse 12. Verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open under their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, three things here. We have a Heavenly Father watching over us to direct us, strengthen us, and equip us. Yet God has promised to provide, to strengthen, and equip us for everything he asks or commands us to do. Look at it. I'm going to look at a couple of verses here. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. There are some precious promises that God gives us in the world that we need to lay hold on. That will encourage us. The fact that God, our Heavenly Father, you know, if you had an earthly father who really cared about you. You know, when I was growing up, there were times I wondered if Dad really cared. But you know what? I don't ever remember having to worry about what I wore or what I ate. I never worried about it one time. I just took it for granted. Because Dad took care of it. Yeah, Mom took care of it. Dad provided. Mom cooked it. You know, if I needed shoes for school, sneakers usually. We call them sneakers. Now you call them tennis shoes. I, for gym class, we need them. So I'd come home and say, of course, you know, every, every start of every school year, you had to get a new pair. And Dad said, well, let's, let's go over to Shem Forest. That was a shoe shop. He was an Amish cousin, by the way, anyway. But anyway, that's where he went. When I needed shoes on the farm, Dad said, well, you know, your shoes are looking kind of bad. Let's go to Shem Forest and get some new shoes. I never worried about that stuff. Why? See, I had a father that equipped me. He did find things for me to do, too. But, um, but, but he equipped me to do the things that he asked. Look at Ephesians here, 1 verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. See, we need to understand who he really is. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. See, Paul says you need your understanding opened, enlightened, 
You need to really understand this. The riches and your understanding of what we have in Christ and what our Heavenly Father has promised us through Christ. You know what? I really believe this is why the disciples couldn't grasp. They couldn't grasp letting Jesus die. Because they didn't realize that God would raise him, had the power to raise him from the dead. So why is it we fail to trust God? Is it maybe because we just not too sure God can really do what he says. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3. <clears throat> Again. Verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, height, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You see, we need to, Paul said, you need to really comprehend the love of God. The height, the depth, the breadth, and length. And then you can begin to understand his power that works in us. You know, if somebody come after one of my children, I'd do everything in my power to protect. It may be an odd six or 270, but I'd use it. Guess what? So God. So will our Heavenly Father. Now He doesn't need not six or two seventy. He'll equip us. Your first Thessalonians five twenty four says, Faith with he that calleth you who also will do it. Philippians four thirteen. My God, no. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Verse nineteen. My God shall supply all your needs according to riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So he has, our heavenly, we have a heavenly father watching over us to direct us, strengthen us, equip us. Not only that, we have one to correct us. You know, when we go wrong, he's going to correct us. He's going to endeavor to correct me. You know, when I, when I did something wrong, I kind of one thing. Dad was going to correct me. Hebrews 12 says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you're a child of God and you rebel against his commandment, he's going to chasten you. You can count on it. 
but he chases you for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. You see, it's for our good. So God will correct us, and then I kind of got ahead of myself here, but he also protects us. Verse 12, notice verse 12 here, uh, kind of alludes to that. It says, but and he, his, <clears throat> for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And then, you know, really, in context here, I really should read verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? So, you know, I, I believe there that the idea here is that God is against those that do evil that will do evil against you. Proverbs 2 7 says that he is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. A buckler is a shield. You know, the children of Israel in the wilderness, he was a cloud by day and a pillar by night. Pillar of fire by night. And when the Egyptians came after him, that pillar of fire went between the camp of the Israelites and the camp of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians could not get to the Israelites. Psalmist says the Lord, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. You remember in Job chapter 1, when the sons of God came and Satan with them, and the Lord said, Hey, you considered my servant Job? Satan said, Yeah, I've considered him. But you have a hedge of battle. You know what? God did not, didn't deny that. He didn't deny that. But what he did say is, all right. And he said, you take his hedge away and he'll curse God in your face. God said, all right. You can touch him what he has. So he lost all his possessions all his children and Job didn't curse God and Satan comes back and says yeah well you just skin for skin in other words you touch his body he'll curse you God said okay you can touch his body but you can't take his life and of course Job got boils from head to toe what a miserable condition can't imagine Job still did not curse God but the point I'm making is God does protect us he had a hedge about Job he did not deny that he has a hedge about us, too. So, we have a Heavenly Father watching over us. And if we walk with Him, we can walk in peace and assurance, knowing that He, knowing that He will provide and will protect. And if we go astray, he will also correct and try, endeavor to bring us back. So my God, help us to live in harmony before the Lord, to walk with him, to please him, knowing that he cares for us, that He's we have a Heavenly Father that loves us and concerned about us.
and help us to love one another and to live in harmony that we might be a witness and testimony to this lost world that knows not Christ. Pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time in your word tonight. Thank you for the encouragement that we find in it. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd help us as your children to not take the promises you give us in your word for granted. And Father, help us to work at it, to seek peace and ensue it. Lord, to learn to control our tongue, our actions, our attitudes toward our fellow man, toward one another, that we might glorify you and live in harmony and live a good life. And then hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So just encourage our hearts tonight. Thank you again for your promises, we pray in Jesus' name.